Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the first film club. I'm Natalie Louise. And I'm Hannah Flint. And this is a podcast series dedicated to established and emerging talent from the film industry and the first feature that launched their careers. We started the first film club back in 2018 as a Q&A event series. We've been able to hear from some of the most celebrated directors as they reflect on their feature film debuts in cinemas across London. Now Hannah and I are excited to expand the format to include talent both in front of and behind the camera. Each episode is dedicated to a film, a guest, and their behind-the-scenes stories, memories, and advice from their time on set. Hannah will set the scene. Michael Lehman is one of the most in-demand and prolific television directors in the US. He's worked on such critically acclaimed series as Dexter, Californication, True Blood, and American Horror Story, and this year's new Netflix comedy series, The Woman in the House Across the Street from the Girl in the Window, starring Kristen Bell. Some of his earlier film credits, including Airheads and Hudson Hawk, have earned welcome critical reappraisals in recent years. But the greatness of his directorial debut, Heathers, is indisputable. I wanted to be a member of the most powerful clique in school. Dear Diary, Heather said she teaches people real life. You were nothing before you met me. You were a Girl Scout cookie. Does it not bother you that everybody in this school thinks that you're a piranha? Like, I give a shit. You a Heather? No, I'm a Veronica. I just killed my best friend. And your worst enemy. Same difference. My teen angst has a body count. This was a tragic thing. Hallelujah. I did not want them dead. You did too. Did not. You did not. Shut up. I love my dead gay son. That's it. We're breaking up. Starring Winona Ryder and Christian Slater, the 1989 film is a biting high school satire that shocked adults more than its teen audience for its nonchalant portrayal of teen suicide, bulimia and gun violence. Hevis has become a cult classic, finding its way to the stage with a musical adaptation and a TV adaptation. Michael takes me on a journey back to its creation. Michael Lehman, thank you so much for joining us. We spoke a few years ago for the anniversary, but now we get to see each other and talk in person or as in person as you can be with a Zoom. It's a pleasure. Well, I, as I've said, I'm such a humongous fan of Heather's and I feel 
so much of it, you know, you look at the years gone by, it's really become the blueprint for how so many kind of high school films and dark comedies approaching that teenage subject, you know, has been influenced by what what it was done in 1989. Well, 1988, actually, because it came out in 1989, right? Yeah. So before we get into it, where were you in your career right before, like before you signed on? What have you been up to? And what, I suppose, why were you in this prime position to kind of take on this job? Well, I was very lucky for one thing. I I left, uh, finished film school at USC Film School in 1985. And one of my friends there was a writer named Larry Karaszewski, who's gone on to do all sorts of amazing things. He and his partner, Scott Alexander, have written tons of great stuff. Larry had gone to high school with Daniel Waters, who wrote Heathers. And I knew him through this group of friends. And I, at that point, I think I'd done a short for Saturday Night Live. I'd written a couple scripts. I had, uh, you know, that starting out career moment of getting hired to do rewrites on people's scripts. I had a writing partner named Redbeard Simmons, who was very talented. And uh, Dan Waters called me and said he needed to find an agent for his script, Heathers. And could I help him? And I said, sure. I, and I had gotten an agent when I came out of film school. I made a, a short film called The Beaver Gets a Boner that is really <laughs> silly and doesn't probably doesn't hold up. Everyone is it follow. online? Can we find it? Post it uh, on YouTube. <laughs> I, it's it exists somewhere because it came out on a on one of the Heather's DVD releases. They seem to get a hold of it. I don't oh. know how. It's owned by it's owned by the USC Film School. I haven't actually watched it in at least twenty years. Anyway. It did get me an agent, and uh, I was out there just trying to get my first film made. And when Daniel came to me and said, can you help me get an agent? And I read, this, I read an early draft of the script, which was incredible. And I said, uh, yeah, let me send it to my agent. And she was Bobby Thompson, who was a young agent at William Morris Agency in, in LA. She read it, flipped for it. And so she tried to set it up with Stanley Kubrick or some, you know, directors at that level, but it was a, it was an oddball movie and it was the first time screenwriter and she couldn't quite get anywhere with it. And I said, well, you know, I'm here. I'm ready, <laughs> ready to jump in as soon as I'm ready as to go. <laughs> and uh, so that's that. I was I was writing a script that from that ended up being my second movie called Meet the Applegates. I was working on that. I was trying to get my first film done and I was the luckiest person on the world in the world to really run across that particular script at that time mm-hmm. and be in a position to get somebody interested in making it. It's one thing I kind of hear a lot is is people, even though it's your you know debut feature, like you said, there's there's so many ways in which filmmakers have already done a lot of work, so it doesn't even feel like a a kind of first film because they've already done the previous things they work on. Was is that one of the things that I suppose all of that experience kind of fed into it when you're kind of approaching a feature because you'd had that that experience working with studios doing rewrites, but also obviously your short film. Like, how did that wealth of experience that you managed to accrue in between film school and then making it, how much did that kind of like inform what you were doing and how much you understood how to run a set as well? Well, you know, until you do it, you haven't done it. And if <laughs> you haven't done it, you don't know quite how to do it. But I was in a fortunate position. I had worked on a few feature films with, uh, I worked for Francis Coppola for his company, 
before I went to film school, in between regular college and pretty film good school. mentor, pretty good guy to like work with, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. And he he had an extraordinary situation with his studio. It was called Zoetrope Studios in L.A. And he was making a bunch of movies. And if you worked for his company, it was like a family and you had access to just about everything. So I felt like I'd been around it a lot, but I hadn't done it a lot. Mm. And in film school, I made movies as, a, as one does with my friends and enjoyed it and learned quite a bit, mostly by making mistakes. <laughs> very, very important. Yes. The, the, the worst part of making your first movie is that you haven't made enough mistakes yet. Right. Because it's the only way to learn. And uh, so I felt reasonably confident in many respects and then entirely exposed and out of my depths in other respects. So uh, I do remember the very first day we shot and I walked from my car to the set and we were shooting in, I think we were shooting in um, Pacific Palisades in LA. It was the cro the house with the croquet, the York oh, yeah. thing. And I remember walking by all the trucks and seeing all the people. And I thought, oh my God, what am I doing? I don't, I shouldn't be here, you know? So it's not as if by the time you do your first film under any circumstances, you're really prepared for what it's like to be on a real professional mm. set of a feature film and, and realize, yeah, you're, you're in charge of moving this along. So. And mm. um, you, you know, you said you write as well. So doing a film that's not your work as a first feature, because often you have the filmmakers, they'll be like, I wrote, write your director, do their thing, do what you know, and you can have a bit more control over it. But as you said, Daniel was like a friend, like a friend, like someone you knew. So how was that relationship, especially in the, I suppose, the development process before production even started, the kind of conversations once you knew that you were doing it and you could kind of collaborate? It was it was really good for me. I honestly, I prefer to direct things that I haven't written because uh, then I'm in full on interpreter mode and I can look at the material and choose to approach it the way I'd approach it, but have respect for the fact that somebody else sat in a room for a long time and gestated and thought about it and worked it out. I don't mind that. I don't feel like uh, I need to be fully in full possession of all the material. And in the case with Dan, he is so good. You, you can tell that's why the movie works. His script was brilliant. And he is a wonderful person and has a sense of humor that's unequaled. I think I've worked with a lot of very funny people. Daniel is as funny as anybody I've ever been around. And his ability to find the humor in a situation is very strong. So during the uh, preparation of the movie, we got on great and, and I kept him involved as much as possible. It was never the case where a lot of the times when directors work with another writer's material, they're, they're possessive. The directors are possessive and don't want the writer to tell them what they think <laughs> and don't and then I've been in that situation before when I didn't have such a great relationship with the writer. But in, in this case, I didn't make a major decision without discussing with Dan and Denise Denovi, who was the producer, who's terrific. She's also very bright. She was she was we were all young. We didn't really know what we were doing, but we all we all put everything we had into it. So it was a very good collaboration. It's such a it kind of it's very shocking, especially at the time. I mean, now you kind of look at it, it's like, yeah, this is cool. But at the time, it's kind of the idea, the concepts that were in it, quite dark themes, suicide, bulimia, all this type of stuff, a murder. But um, 
you know, was, did it have to be tamed before, you know, you got approval to get the money? Like how was, was it kind of a lot darker than what obviously the final shooting script that you use? Like how much did that, how much did influence from maybe studios or financial backers would you say might have changed the tone or kind of the endings or things about it that you couldn't end up doing in the end just to look we need the money okay well we'll compromise on that yeah we we famously had to change the ending in 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 at least one of the i think the draft that we went to new world pictures who made the film the draft we went to them with had um the school blow up at the end and and it finished on a prom in heaven and I'm that so sad. Wanted. That's such a yeah. good ending. <laughs> yes. And we we really wanted to do it. The the problem was the good news was we, we had an executive or at New World named Steve White who had a great sense of humor and had been an actor and he got the script. He totally understood it, which is very uh, extraordinary. He said he would not make the movie if the Veronica character committed suicide. Essentially, if she was involved in blowing up the school in any way, he said it would be morally irresponsible to put out a movie like this in which the main character somehow or another might endorse somebody to commit suicide. And Daniel and I were, are you kidding me? No, nobody's going to watch this and go kill themselves because of this movie. And we fought very hard and lost that battle. I mean, the power of cinema, but there's also not that powerful. <laughs> right. But although, you know, this is is always debated and there is no there is no absolute answer to it. We tried, we checked out other places that had shown interest in making the movie and all of them wanted much, much, much bigger changes. Oh, okay. Yeah. So essentially Steve White said, I'll let you make the movie as scripted exactly the way you want without telling you what to do, except you have to change the ending. And that was it. And and as we made the movie and got notes from the studio, they never made us take anything out because it was offensive. They never said anything was too dark. We did not get those kind of notes. I don't know how or why. I think that, you know, we got notes like, oh, that shot of the burning trash can. Can you shorten that by a few frames? <laughs> really? I mean, things that did not affect the the elements of this of the movie that could have been offensive to people and we hoped would be offensive to some people uh <laughs> we weren't asked to change those once we changed the ending um one of the things i i spoke to some filmmakers about is like make the movies for as little money as possible therefore you can have like great yes. change so i wonder so was it about three million in budget that's what that's what uh the internet has told me yeah was that quite a high amount that you expected was that more than you expected you know because you, you nowadays you get people doing stuff for i don't know like less than a million but also it seems to be this big gap where there's like you either do it for one million or you do it for a hundred million <laughs> no in-betweens three million always sounded like a lot but we did not have very much money so i don't <laughs> i don't really know you know you could at that time of course you could make a movie for a million dollars you could make a movie for two hundred fifty thousand dollars it's actually easier to do it now because of mm. digital technology. At the, at the, you know, when you have to have film, you have to shoot with film cameras, you have to mm. process film, you can shoot in Los Angeles with a union crew and all that sort of thing. And then $3 million did not go very far. Had somebody come to us and said, we will make the movie exactly the way you want with no interference and you only get a million five, I, we probably would have done it. 
no, nobody was getting paid. You know, nobody, <laughs> none of us were making any money on this thing. Can so, you tell me how much you got paid for it? Uh, yeah, I got paid. I, if I remember right, and it might have been less. I, my my memory is fifty thousand dollars. That's like, yeah. I mean, it's weird because I have no kind of like concept of how much people should be getting paid for these things. But well, imagine it takes a year and a half of your life, yeah, and that's the only money you're going to make. So oh, it's so that's actually not a lot. <laughs> it, so it doesn't really amount to much, but to me at the time, fifty thousand dollars was like, oh my yeah. god, I'm, I'm rich. So, <laughs> What did you it, buy first? <laughs> my groceries. <laughs> because in the time, I remember in the time leading up to getting the movie made, I couldn't pay a single bill. I mean, I couldn't pay for the food on my table. And so it was um, it was tricky. But that was $50,000. No residuals. It was not a guild movie. Mm. You know, so nothing. I never got paid another cent for it. Whereas... Some of the movies I've made that people think are god-awful, horrible abominations that never should have been made, I got paid residuals on because somebody out there liked it anyway. Um, Streaming it, has been very good for you. <laughs> no, 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 actually, no. <laughs> uh, in the old days, the, the residual structure for things done through the Guild were pr was pretty good. If You know, you get a percentage mm. of something if people paid money to see it. Nowadays, streaming... A lot of people see it. Yeah, <laughs> you don't necessarily get any money, but I, I mean, honestly, I don't know a single director who ever did the job for the money. No, no. You I know. mean, we all do these things, and we're not really. I don't think we're getting paid like for the big, big. You just do it for the love of it, and you enjoy making and writing and creating. So, casting for this is such a. I mean, it's kind of you couldn't imagine anyone else in the roles. Looking back on it now. But there were a few ideas knocked around and people chopped and changed. So tell me a bit about like that process. And I suppose in your head, like who were your who were your ideal people that you had in mind for like the Heathers, Veronica and JD? The original idea for Veronica that Daniel had in mind when he wrote the script in which I was very much on board for was Jennifer Connolly. Yeah. Labyrinth. Yes. And we were big fans. She, she was a teen <laughs> actress. I, she wasn't famous or anything like that. But uh, and I, I'm pretty sure we went to her first. But uh, she was 16, and I think her parents controlled her career. And I think everybody said, "No, thank you. We're not going to do this movie." So we we got a quick, polite pass. Then we had to go through the the list that New World Pictures was willing to make the movie with. And that was a short list. And I did auditions. And uh, at one point, there was talk of they wanted Justine Bateman, who is now, or I think she just published a book. You know, she's she's still very active. They they talked about her. I like her very much, and but it didn't feel like the right fit. Mm -hmm. And I believe she passed, that her people said no. And what we found was that Mostly the agents and, and managers and parents of people that we went to that had any sort of career already, most of them said, there's no way I'll put my kid in this, <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> so, for example, I tried to get um, Heather Graham to play the Heather Chandler part, the one who goes through the coffee table. Yeah. And she, she was known and she was good and she auditioned for us and she gave a tremendous audition. She was fabulous. And her mother said no <laughs> and heather was i think she was she was 15 or 16 or 17 whatever not of legal age 
And I actually called her mother and had a good two-hour phone conversation begging her <laughs> to let her daughter do this movie because Heather wanted to do it. Yeah. The mother, the mother was, she was a very intelligent woman who was a school teacher and I think politically conservative and she, she there was no way. She yeah, she wasn't. couldn't have a daughter in a film about teenage suicides and no, <laughs> say say the things that the language was offensive to her. And of course, when Heather turned eighteen or whatever age, she was free of her parents' control. She did Drugstore Cowboy, which was equally edgy and very good. But um, so it was hard to get people in the movie. It was hard to to overcome that. The uh, Winona Ryder was an up and coming actress. I'd seen her in a couple of things. I loved her. I thought she would be perfect. I was from the very beginning said, this girl would be great. This girl would be great. But she meant nothing. I don't even know if New World knew who she was. And coincidentally and happily, Bobby Thompson, our agent at William Morris, represented the Tim Burton and the writers of Beetlejuice. Oh, and yes. So Michael McDowell, who was one of the Beetlejuice writers, read the script for Heather's because Bobby showed it to him and said, you'll like this. And he said, I don't like that, I love this. And he goes, and you know who would be perfect for this is this young girl that we have in Beetlejuice, her name is Winona Ryder. And the word got back to me, I said, oh, Winona Ryder, I love Winona Ryder, that would be perfect, how do we get the script to her? And, and Bobby said, just Michael will give it to her, Michael McDowell, and he did. And she read it and she loved it. And she already had pretty good, she had a very good agent, a powerful agent who said, no, you can't do this. I won't let you do it. And Winona liked it so much that she told her agent, there's no way you're going to stop me from doing this. <laughs> if they'll cast me in this, I'll make the movie. So she was, it felt fated to be. Absolutely. And the moment we sat down in a room with her, we knew that she was the one. Was there any kind of screen test together with like, because Winona and Christian have like such amazing chemistry, but yeah. also there's the chemistry between the girls, the four core girls. It's like you've, you believe that friendship. And I suppose it does help that we're all kind of similar, although obviously Lasanne was a little bit older, but, yeah, like, <laughs> but like when you got them cast, was there any rehearsal periods that you were doing to try and cement those friendships so it felt like lived in and real? We, we did do a little bit of rehearsal. Not much. There's not much. There's never enough time and there's never the resources to do that the way you'd <laughs> like. But um, because the language is so unusual and, and a lot of the a lot of the great language that Daniel wrote was made up, we had to make sure that everybody could say it, you know, that it sounded right coming out of people's mouth. <laughs> but the only screen test and the only sort of chemistry reads that I remember doing were with Winona and Christian and also Winona and Donovan Leach, mm. whose sister was um, doing pretty well as an actress and whose father was the, the singer. <laughs> and, and Donovan was very good and he was somebody, he was really our second choice. And he pulled out because he got offered a job on, I think it was the remake of The Blob or something like that, no, some other Hollywood movie. <laughs> the, <laughs> I remember, we were trying to figure out whether Christian or Donovan would be the, our best choice. And I don't, I don't know if we'd actually uh, read Christian yet. And it was still a, a question. And I got the call that Donovan had been convinced by this other director that, that our movie was not worth doing and that this other movie should be, would be the one for him. And I thought, Oh my God, is that how it works in Hollywood? Do I have to talk to actors and tell them that it's good for their career? Because, 
<laughs> I well, yes, but also I could never. I would never talk to an actor and say this is good for your career. Yeah. Uh, I would say this is a good part for you to do, and here's why. But I would never say do mine and don't do that. I thought it was in, it was interesting, um, but also that was his choice. Mm. So he made our choice much easier. I always yeah. think of that that scene in Pretty Woman where she goes back to the store after they've like refused to serve her, but then she's yeah. all dressed up and she's like, big mistake, huge. And every time I hear these stories, that just kind of pops into my head because obviously with hindsight, but it's like there's so many people, these missed opportunities and how it's become such a cultural kind of artifact now, like and timeless in a way. And people like missed out. It's like, well, you're in the blob remake, but you're not in Heather. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't, that, that, but that's hard, you know, because we, we make our choices for all sorts of reasons. And for actors, most of the time, actors at that level in high school and at, at that level, they, if they're offered a job, they'll take it. If it, you know, if it looks like a good opportunity. So it's not as if we had a lot of people saying, oh no, we're too good for this. Even in the case of Jennifer Connelly, it was her parents didn't think it was right for her or Heather Graham, her parents didn't want her to do it. Have you met any of them since? And have they discussed like, oh. You know, I've never met Jennifer Connelly ever. <laughs> and I, I'm a huge fan of her work to this day. I did get an opportunity to work with Heather Graham, whom I, I think I'd met her along the way a few times. Uh, she's she's a lovely person. I worked with her on Californication, the, the Showtime mm -hmm. series. And, uh, and I, I adored her. She was so good and she was so much fun. And we talked about it, you know. I said, do you remember that last time we were? <laughs> 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 but um, yeah, I actually, uh, over the years have worked so wait, with her. So what did she say? Was she like, yeah, I should have done it? Or was she like, oh, yeah. oh, well. <laughs> we laughed. I mean, it's many years later, she had a big career. She was doing well. She was in a good place. You, you never really say what a regret. On her deathbed, she's going to be like, I wish I did Heather's. <laughs> uh, uh, no, I'm joking. <laughs> no. uh, I remember there was another actress that was presented to us, and I think she auditioned. And we were told, no, her agents have turned it down because she's up for the role in a Tom Cruise movie. And I worked with her uh, many, many years later, and she was a terrific actress, but she never had that career. You know, she had a good career. And we talked about that, and she just said, well, you never know, you know, I mean, yeah. she, because uh, you never know. But it's also true, we did a bunch of auditions for the JD part for Christian's role, and a lot of really good young actors came out and read for us, but it was such a tricky role that even people who I think are tremendously talented and have had good careers, they weren't hitting it in the audition the way I thought it needed to be done because the language was, in many ways, it was complicated and difficult to get the cadence right. Mm -hmm. And the, the younger women, they were much better at it. I don't know why. They they just our choices. We had more choices that were good. I definitely think there's a vernacular that girl high school girls have, like a yeah. kind of second language. That once they get it, it's just a delivery of like yeah, like you said, like intonation, the voices and stuff, where it's not as monotone. So it kind of just like snaps. Yes, the the guys were either they were trying to imitate another actor, which people say Christian sounds a lot like Jack Nicholson. Yeah, I wanted to ask about this. Someone said to me today when I said I was interviewing, they're like, ask about Jack Nicholson. I was like, well, I can see it a little bit, but maybe. 
the, at one point I noticed it right away. We all noticed it and thought, well, it, my, my point at the time, I remember saying everybody, every young actor we were reading was imitating somebody. And that was not the case with the young women. So I thought it must be that the guys are trying to find something to hang on to, to as a as a model. So either they were doing De Niro or they were doing James Dean from the 50s or they were doing Tom Cruise, you, mm. you know, who was a star then. They're, they're doing these things that, that sound very reminiscent of them. Christian was the only one who had a kind of a Jack Nicholson element to his voice. And at one point I asked him, I said, are you deliberately doing a Jack Nicholson imitation. <laughs> I just wanted to know where it came from. And he said, he said for him, one of the only actors he could look to as a role model for this kind of part was Jack Nicholson, who played dark comedy roles incredibly mm. well. And he also said, and this is absolutely true, that's simply how his voice is. I mean, yeah. he he does talk that way. That's so- uh, Also his smile, his smile, I think because he's got quite a grin it kind of seems like that. And he's got this quite playful, like yeah. he looks like, it's like, you know, I would say Leonardo DiCaprio kind of looks a bit like Jack Nicholson. Mm -hmm. If you look at it a certain way, sometimes it's just the curse of coming after. Yes. It's the curse of coming after. And, um, but there was never any conscious attempt to imitate Jack Nicholson. And I'll tell you the people who came in and read the role as if they were Tom Cruise, that was <laughs> not good. Which Tom Cruise though, like Tom Cruise and like Risky Business or? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was because that that would be the, you know. <laughs> they just came in in a shirt and sunglasses. <laughs> right, Risky Business or like Taps or whatever, you yeah. know, these kind of, these 80s movies where the kids were playing, playing these macho guys. Hello, I'm Sam Pei. And I'm Martin Zolt-Sorstwick. And we are the two hosts of a podcast called Song, Song by, by Song, where we listen every week to a track by the musical artist Tom Waits. Uh, you might know him for his gravelly voice. <coughs> very nice. His appearance in films, but also his multi-decade spanning career uh, involving blues, jazz, and all sorts of other kinds of experimental music. So we're basically like a book club for Tom Waits. And if that sounds like your cup of tea, you can find us at songbysongpodcast.com or wherever you get podcasts. Talking about like Christine Slater emulating Jack Nicholson. You as a filmmaker, I'm sure there are plenty of filmmakers that it might have informed your perspective or kind of you enjoyed and want to emulate, but also create your own. So what were the things you were thinking about right before you kind of set it out with production and all that sort of things about how it was going to look and shot? At the time, even we were playing off of a lot of the, the conventions of teen movies at the time, which John Hughes was a very good example, but I never thought John Hughes movies looked particularly good. Uh, they, they looked like comedies, you know, mm -hmm. they were tended to be brightly lit and shot in ways that were not especially stylish. And so I remember thinking mostly I'd look to Stanley Kubrick because at that time he was a god to me and I thought, <laughs> What what he does is great. He would use wide lenses. He'd keep the camera low. He'd move the camera in a certain way. I did uh, look at the the scenes in Full Metal Jacket that took place in the Marine boot camp, mm -hmm. where the Marine sergeant would walk through the the guys. I thought that was a pretty good model for how the feel of the of the high school cafeteria should be, that sort of thing. But for the most part, I was leaning, I think, stylistically on on the people who, the filmmakers who at the time I thought were great, which would be Kubrick, it would be Scorsese, it would be uh, Roman Polanski, that sort of thing. The people who could do 
darker material and still have it be fun. Mm. You know, this was there. There weren't a lot of models for that, um, really, not in American cinema. So and, and we had the limitations we had in being able to shoot. We we shot the movie in 30, 30 days, maybe 31 or 32. We by mm. the time we were finished. And that was that's OK. You know, for, for that's pretty good for a super low budget movie. But it, it only gives you so much room to move and to do things that are stylistically interesting. So, you know, I, I did the best I could. <laughs> I <laughs> think some I mean, there's so many kind of iconic shots and, and scenes, but what I like is the campy element to it. I mean, you said poppy colors, but there is such a vibrant use of colors in so many ways. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's some things that really just like when she's having the dreams, I love when Rory's having these dreams where she's like in the ground or, you know, at the funeral, like those things. So how are you kind of like delivering those? So they have that feel of that you know, that this is, even though you, at first you were kind of lulled into a sense of, Oh, wait a sec, is this real? But you kind of know there's something different. So getting between those different perspectives, how fun was that to kind of enact that and create those differences, but keeping it all quite a seamless story as well? We had uh, our production designer named John Hutman. He was a young guy. He was, I think probably, he wasn't 30. He must have been like 25 or 26. And he was uh, extremely bright and had worked for really good designers. And he he had a great sense of this. So to talk with John about how how we would have the sets laid out, how they'd be dressed, what colors we'd use, what the general sort of feel would be. He he was really good at incorporating that in. Some elements, the color coding of the girls, the, which one had which color and croquet and all that, that was in the script. So it was a great starting point. And Rudy Dillon, who was the costume designer, really took that. And she did a great job with all those crazy 80s fashions, which were exaggerated even at even for our movie <laughs> even at the time they were clothes that people did wear but we we amped it up a little bit with the shoulder pads and all that we we went full in for what the styles would be um and francis kenny the cinematographer he was leaning a lot into things like blue gels which were very trendy at the time and he did a good job with it and all i think all those elements contributed to giving us an opportunity. So what do you mean by blue gels? I was trying to think in my head, but what's the blue gel? Well, if you think about, um, so do you know the scene where they're cow, the cow tipping scene where they're pushing yeah. the cow over? And then, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. then Veronica goes to JD and they're out in the woods and he's on his motorcycle smoking and his back lit and he blows his smoke out. There's There was a heavy blue gel on the light and you see this, and that's a very that's a stylistic choice to go with these sort of deep purple blue gels. And that was a real '80s filmmaking thing. <laughs> I wouldn't do it now, <laughs> um, or maybe I would do it now self consciously. But there was a lot of that stuff that even at the time I thought, is this is this too silly, you know? But it kind of helped create the world where things could be realistic yet the stylized language and and all that crazy behavior could make some sense. And you could go from reality to dream back to reality and make it work. I think that's what's so great about it. There's never a sense that this is like a real school. It's always feels like heightened. It feels like a very, like, this is the world stylized world, you know, it's real. So it's always interesting when people like, Oh, this is like, you there's that you you're in on the joke. 
because you yeah. I, that's what I feel that's what you get from it from just the aesthetic but like as you said the language as well it's like this is all fabricated and it feels like you should take you should definitely not take it seriously <laughs> like take yeah. it literally not seriously literally yeah it's hard because when you when you do really dark comedy on the one hand the, the temptation is to make it brutally real and then it's dark 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 and it's funny for the people who get that humor mm. but it's harder for other people people who don't quite get it it's harder to to get a larger group of people to understand where the humor is so it's always a tricky question i'm gonna if i think back movies at the time there was a movie called river's edge which you should definitely look at uh, at some point it's a great teen movie at the time it was very dark it was based around the idea that a, a real life story where somebody found a dead body behind the school or in the woods near the school and everybody comes to look at the body and it was funny and it was super dark but it was something that most people wouldn't call a comedy right or later on you get a movie like um election you know yes. um, alexander Pease movie which i love and and but alexander's choice is to go more realistic you know it's got a kind of a very realistic style in which except for the places where um actors are talking into the camera which does happen in that movie it's kind of a, a realistic style it's not pushed in in a heightened direction so mm. we went for a more stylized look this was done before election obviously so you have um you may we talk about the language and the dialogue so as you you've said that daniel basically had the dialogue down but i suppose was there anything that this young cast might have been able to tweak or change or say i think they would say it like that was was there any of their influence at all on being the younger people to say this is how we we should do it or even having comments on like what they were wearing I can imagine you know with the fashion going on it's like who gets to wear what and were people happy with those kind of looks my memory is that that everybody was really on the same page on this film it was kind of extraordinary that the cast we had they were very young we wanted I wanted real teenagers to play the parts as much as possible and they seemed to feel comfortable and, you know, subscribe to what it was we were trying to do without question. I don't remember. There were times when people had difficulty with the language just saying it, uh, but they never wanted to change it. The difficulty was, ah, how do I get it right? How do I how do I let this flow off my tongue as if this is the way I talk all day long every day? Uh, and, and they learned it well. You know, somebody like Shannon Doherty, she was terrific. She, Shannon could take Dan's dialogue and just rattle it off. And she knew how to do it. She had a, she had a knack for that. Um, I don't know if she had any perspective on the whole thing. You know, I never, she, uh, it was, she would, she would had opinions about stuff, but they had more to do with, they didn't really have to do with, I'm not going to say these lines that they was, that was not an issue with her. And she was particularly adept at that. Winona was so on board with this movie. She knew she knew everybody's lines. She knew the, the script backwards and forwards, and she was gung-ho enthusiastic about, about doing it the way it was on the page. So uh, Kim Walker, though. Yeah. Speaking of, I mean, she, she's got some excellent dialogue. I mean, she's so cutting. I can imagine it was so much fun. But wasn't she Christian Slater's girlfriend? at the time was it she was 
she was. was. So, I mean, I always think like, how are those dynamics? How are those dynamics on sets? Did you have to manage any kind of, I don't know, because it can be quite difficult working together with all these young people, kind of emotions, flying hormones and all that. Yeah, I tried. I tried so hard to stay out of it (laughs) because I had my hands full. I could never, at one point I thought, Kim is Christian's girlfriend, but uh, Christian and Winona are very close. And is there something going on? But I, I don't think there was. I think Kim and Christian were together the whole time, but they were, they didn't have that many scenes together. And I don't remember there being any issues on that front. There was never like, oh, they're in a fight and, you know, they're not talking to each <laughs> other, which does, it happens on movies. Yeah. Um, and, uh, there was a little bit of clickishness among the actors, mm. which is to be expected. <laughs> was that, was the cleats kind of play out as it kind of, I suppose it's, it's interesting when you think about if people are supposed to be somewhat rivals, is that kind of like it, it, it kind of seeps into uh, on the set from the kind of, I suppose the emotions from what you're saying that actually that kind of maintains that level of friction and in a way where you kind of like, that's good to have that because it makes for better, adds attention and takes, especially, you know, when like you've got the, the kind of the power struggle between Veronica and, and Heather, Shannon Doherty's head of Heather, kind of that changing dynamics. Yeah, th- I think there was a bit of real life that filtered over, you know, sort of filtered in. Kim Walker was actually very shy and she was not this kind of cutting edge powerhouse that she played she had it in her obviously she, she <laughs> managed to find it but it's always the shy ones <laughs> it's always the shy ones i didn't find a mean bone in her body you know which meant in in doing those scenes sometimes i remember pushing her pretty hard to find that edge and she had it and she did it shannon is a pretty edgy person she was a you know pretty wild 15 year old and, and <laughs> Shannon also, when Shannon came into audition, the, our casting director said to me, we have to warn you, she really wants the Veronica role. <laughs> this is right before she came into the room. And I said, right, but we've cast that role already. You know, that yeah. Winona had already been cast. And they said, we know, she knows, just want you to know that that's, she's coming in with the attitude that she would be a better Veronica. Oh, yeah. And I said, okay, uh, you know, good to know. <laughs> and then she came in and gave a perfect audition. You know, she she was really good. And I said, well, we can't cast her as Veronica because we already have Veronica. She wouldn't, I, she's not a perfect Veronica. She's perfect. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and we offered her the role of Heather Duke, which is a, a great role and a complicated one. And she took it and she did it well. And I always thought there was a bit of natural competition there, you know. You know what? You've just said that. It's like you can just imagine, and again, not to speak for for them, what they were going through, obviously, can I, but like you can imagine how just even when Veronica kind of becomes a bit more of a top dog and then Heather's like she wants that, you know, that kind of like slight jealousy of yeah. she's got the status that I want. And if that kind of situation, especially as teenagers, because we all have these things, like that's so brilliant. It's amazing that she was able to channel that energy in a way that made the film even better. Yeah, she, there, there was definitely some of that going on. And Lizanne is, of course, a, a lovely person, also 
not in real life. She's she's not a competitive. I thought you were about to say not in real life. She's a terrible person. <laughs> no, in real life she's a she's a great person. <laughs> she's terrific, and I don't think that Lizanne got as much involved in that sort of stuff. She was a couple of years older. She was very centered. I'm too old for this shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but they, they all got along. I mean, everybody got along. This was a. Uh, if there was real serious drama happening, I wasn't aware of it, but you know. So again, like this is, you're dealing with a lot of personalities. This is your first major feature. How are you kind of feeling as those days, that kind of days ticked on? Like, did you kind of feel more confident as you got shots done, scenes continued, that getting the angles that you want was, you know, were there times in it where you were like, oh God, I feel overwhelmed. I'd love to just know about like where you were at in your head and that experience. Well, I, I do remember coming in, as I said, the first day I was a little scared and we had a huge windstorm blow up in the first day and it, and it destroyed some of our, the equipment, the big, the big screens that they put up to, uh, to filter the lights got ripped and blown in the wind. And we, I think we lost a quarter of a day's worth of work, maybe a third no. of a day. Terrible. That was our first day. And I thought, oh no, you know, what no, that's 20 grand of the budget. <laughs> but but the footage was good. And I had been I, I came into the into the shoot saying, We have 30 days. I really need 32. I really, really want 32. It would be so much better. It would help a lot. And I remember saying this to Denise, the producer, and she said, This is all we got. This is all we get. At the end of the first week, the production executive from um, New World, a guy named Barry Bernardi, came came to me and said, this stuff is looking really good. He said, we're very happy with this. I said, get me 32 days, please. <laughs> and he said, I think, I think you'll be all right. So by the end of the first week, I knew that we'd settled into a good groove. We were getting footage that was really good, that Winona was amazing and Christian was amazing and the girls were terrific. And so... I, I feel like we kind of settled into a good groove pretty early and that's how it went for the rest of the shoot. And what, what was the most challenging scene to, to film? Oh, that's such, that's a really good question. Um, a lot of the big, the big scenes in the cafeteria, which I loved and had been mapped out pretty carefully and we knew what we were going to do. Those were tricky because we had a lot of people. Uh, we had to create the sense of what, what the, you know, the hub of high school was all about. Those were tricky. They worked well. We got what we wanted. The cafeteria and, scene is such an iconic scene in pretty much all. You can't have a teen high school movie without a cafeteria scene. Right. And and cafeterias are hard to shoot in because they're just tables laid out in a big space. We did find a room that had great windows. You know, we, we did, once again, John Hutman, our designer, did great work in helping us find the best locations for this because we shot the movie in three or four different schools. And so I do remember that was tricky, but. Was that during like the summer break while kids are out? And so you had that time in summer vacation. I think it was spring break for that. And we, and we also found high schools that were shut down. So, cause if I remember right, we were shooting in, in spring, we were shooting in March and April. God knows I should know this, but <laughs> it, it, it feels more like it. It wasn't so. It's been a while. I'll let you off. <laughs> it's been a while. It's been a couple of years. But uh, other difficult scenes, the scene in the woods where they, where the jocks shoot each other, where the, you know, that stuff, yeah. that was so 
also were where Christian shoots them. Those were tricky. You know, we were pushing the limits of our production as far as we could. So everything had an element of challenge to it. What was tricky about it? Was it because it's like you're dealing with like guns and the big thing going off, the blood coming out at the right time? And yeah, we wanted it simple production stuff like we wanted to look like it was just daybreak. And, you know, there should be fog in the air. And we were shooting in Malibu in the woods. <laughs> and it, it had to look like the Midwest in the woods. And, uh, and we had fog machines and the fog would blow away. And it was freezing cold. And we had to go out into the, into the woods and run around and all that kind of stuff. I mean, the production is weird. The simplest <laughs> things get very complicated. And the most complicated things sometimes, because you work them out in advance in such detail, they're a little easier than you expect. But um, we we did not have an easy production. We had mm. a pretty challenging production. Were there any surprises then that came through on the day? Because as you said, like you try and work things out, but suddenly when you're in, in situ, you can't kind of prepare for whatever the, I don't know, weather and stuff like that. I mean, you mentioned that the kind of winds, the wind storm at the beginning, but anything that came from and or like even just like improv in which the actors just went with something and it kind of really worked well that ended up in the final final film i i'm not a big improv guy and and since we had such a great script i didn't really feel like we we needed to mess around to try to figure out how to make it better but a lot of the a lot of the time people would throw things in little bits of stuff and we, we use them quite a bit so it wasn't not that was never discouraged, but I always made sure that we had things shot the way they were written, and that turned out to be the best guideline to follow. Um, the biggest challenges in general on the film were making sure that the dialogue sounded right because it was tricky, and we did have very young actors and they had mouthfuls of words to say. So, on some of the scenes where Christian had to come in and basically speak what was a kind of poetry you know yeah he he did really well and he was always well prepared hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors saving you money and potentially your cat's life Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. But there was, I always felt like we were on the edge of 
oh my god is this going to work or is it just going to be ridiculous and uh, and same with the girls with heather chandler you know when you have somebody saying fuck me gently with the chainsaw <laughs> it, you don't know i mean you have no idea how this is going to work in context Did some people kind of break in those scenes because they just couldn't stop laughing because it's just a hilarious line like it's so shocking but also just hilarious when you think about it it's so over the top <laughs> Yeah, those things they didn't. You know where we broke, and it, it was um, when Kurt's father says, "I love my dead gay son." <laughs> <laughs> there were a whole bunch of us behind the camera who could not stop laughing. I love that bit because I just think it's like it's such a pure moment. It's like this kind of really uber masculine. It's like even in Deffy loves his kid. It's like that's what I think. There's so much like heart in this film as well. It's like, it's not all just like this, like dagger, dagger, you know, it's kind of like celebrating, I don't know, like there's a lot of compassion in there as well. And obviously in a way that kind of fits in with the end as much as like JD's a misanthrope. It's like Veronica isn't, she kind of, she kind of brings it back. There's kind of, hey, and I love the final shot of her kind of walking (laughs) <laughs> walking out frazzled cigarette ready to go and she made a new friend like made a new friend like dump tr- oh god what's it dump truck um yeah oh god More that's such an awful name yeah. <laughs> but you remember it but little little things that kind of it's little things that are great and I I wonder like as well like we're known as handwriting when she's writing in her diary it's so mad <laughs> it's yeah. so big I'm like, how many books did she go through? Was that it's so like, was there any notes about like, just do it as, as extravagant as you can? Because it just looks so hilarious when she's writing it out, like by one line on a one page. <laughs> it, I, you know, that's how she chose to do it. And we needed to, <laughs> I wanted to make sure we could see it, you know, so it couldn't be too tiny. But she, you know, I basically think that that's what she came with and it was really good and she put in the work she would fill in those pages and she would do the writing she was really amazing by the way i mean she just she's an awesome actor it's true to this day but at the time it she was 16 years old and she was smarter than anybody on the set and she you know she was fully committed to making the movie the right the right way i think this is why why her why her and christian was such a good match because you really did get a sense that they were on like a higher level, <laughs> like just yeah. an intellectual level. And I think that always that's so often comes through in Winona's role and also Chris Stage's role. You get that there's an emotional intelligence, but also an intellect there that in a way, I don't think they even need to act. I think that's just the way they are. And it just adds this kind of, yeah, it just adds this, I don't know, texture and just like character you kind of like, you want to be their friends. They're so cool. Like, they're so good. You're like, yes, it's kind of good to be smart and kind of witty and, you know, not be the popular people. I think that's what people embraced about this. It's like being popular isn't the be all and end all, but also just the kind of fallacy of it as well. Like if yeah. anyone's like the way we can believe things because we follow, I don't know, with the sheepish behavior. That's so good. I love it. Can you tell that I really love this movie? <laughs> um what i suppose then what are your what's your favorite line of dialogue and what is your favorite scene i don't know what my favorite line of dialogue is i mean i still quote the movie in my life just for fun but i think of things like before the funeral before the jock's funeral and she burns her hand with the cigarette lighter and that sort of thing and this girl runs up and says 
Did you hear? School's canceled today because Kurt and Ram killed themselves in a repressed homosexual suicide pact. <laughs> but um, the little, the little bits, you know, the fuck me gently with the chainsaws, and Shannon Doherty saying, um, "Why are you pulling my dick, Veronica?" Yeah. It's stuff like that that I just, I just think that stuff is funny. Did you have a brain tumor for breakfast? All those <laughs> wonderful little moments that Daniel wrote. <laughs> even it's just so weird. Day. It's like who yeah. is like such a what does that even mean? <laughs> <It means>. uh, <laughs> I know, but um and the other day I was I was looking at a pillowcase and I thought of Heather Chandler says, such a pillowcase or something <laughs> at, at one point. And all this stuff is rattling around in my head. So um but th there's also there's great dialogue that never made it into the final cut. I remember telling Dan, I quoted something to Dan. I said, such a great line. And he said, you cut it out. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's right. We never made it in. Um, I can't remember what it was. I'm sorry. Oh, it's, it's all right. So long ago, you know, it's... Uh, no, I mean, but, the fact that you can remember so much is amazing. Do you remember what the first and last scenes you shot were? Like exactly what uh, they were? First scene was croquet. Yeah. And the last scene, wow, that... Technically, the last scene would have been the title sequence, ah. where the, which was also croquet, where, where Veronica's buried in the ground. And the reason I say that was the last scene is because that wasn't part of... We never had... There was a title sequence written in the script of Veronica jogging through the town. And, you know, there were good reasons why Dan wrote it that way, but I never thought it was a really great opening for the film. And we never shot it because... I didn't really feel like we even had the town the way you'd want to see it. We were shooting in California. We were trying to make it look like Ohio. We found yeah. all our locations. And I thought, this is going to be so much trouble. And it's just going to be somebody jogging through a neighborhood. <laughs> and, and so I kept saying, I won't do it. We shouldn't do that. We got to come up with something better. And Dan wrote the, the, the sequence in which they're in the flower beds and they're shooting croquet balls at her head. And that was, I was probably the last thing that we shot. And how was that last day? Like, what was everyone like? Because obviously it's, it's a wrap. Um, what did you guys do afterwards? Go have a sleep. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. We had a wrap party. I remember the wrap party was fun. It, this was a, this was a happy production. This was one of those where, yes, we worked really hard and it was exhausting and it was complicated emotionally because of all the young people and all the stuff we did, but uh, everybody got along, you know, mm. it, and that is not always the case. You know, I've made movies where the actors hated each other. They maybe started off liking each other or maybe not, but you don't know how horrible life can be until you step on a set and you have to do a scene with actors that hate each other. <laughs> It is just awful. You're like, they don't pay me enough for this. <laughs> no, and you know, for the actors, it's fine because they're acting. They'll yeah. like, they'll look at each other with daggers and then boom, you say action and suddenly they're in love with each other yeah. because they're actors. That's what they, <laughs> they can do it. <laughs> uh. so, so then what, I suppose then you've shot it, it's finished and then obviously it's post-production and the edit process. What was What was that kind of like? I mean, how involved were you in that that room i mean you hear these stories not saying you got locked out but you got you hear some stories about like edits and people wanting a different version and what goes in and as you said you know you said things you cut out cut in what was that like oh no th this was i mean i cut the movie absolutely no, nobody 
<laughs> nobody took control of this thing. <laughs> and then nobody wanted to and nobody... Was uh, Final Cut in your contract? No. Uh, no, it wasn't. New World Pictures had Final Cut, but they really did not. Once we shot the movie, they, they didn't mess with anything. You know, tiny, tiny little notes that, that were not difficult to, to execute. Daniel and I were very close going through this. I, I remember we, we screened the rough cut for Friends. And if I remember right, the friends who, who I invited, who came to watch, it was Daniel and Denise, the producer, and my friend Karen Murphy, who produces Chris Guest's movies, um, oh, you I know, Beth and Joan, all those things. And Karen is a really good filmmaker. And she, so she was there. And Kiva Rosenfeld, who is an editor who works with her, was there. And John Schwartzman, who was the second unit DP, but he's gone on. He's a big deal cameraman. Has uh, done all sorts of great big movies, and he was my buddy from film school. And uh, Larry Karaszewski and Sky Alexander, who were our close friends, so we all watched the first cut of the film, and it was maybe two hours and twenty minutes long, and it was qu quite a bit longer. And they all turned to me afterwards and said, "Yeah, it's too bad. You had a good script, but you really fucked it up." <laughs> I was like, "What? What?" Uh, yeah. It, because it's very hard to look at rough cuts of movies. And because Dan's writing was so good, I wanted to screen the movie with everything in it. Right. But, yeah. And I actually had much more experience in cutting rooms than any of these guys. Because when I worked for Coppola, I was around for the editing of the movies. And Francis is, he's a genius in the cutting room. And you can really see how when you watch what he did, when I watched what he did, I saw, oh my God, you know, you make so much of the movie work the way it's supposed to in the cutting room. It doesn't just fall into place. And um, Dan had a, he wrote like 10 pages of notes on that first cut. They were very funny. I'm sure he's got that. He <laughs> must have that somewhere. <laughs> um, his, his notes, his notes were, I never welcomed notes from anybody the way I welcomed them. <laughs> And we figured out, you know, where, where the movie was slow, where it didn't work. Because, you know, you shoot it all. If you look at the actual shooting, shooting script, you'll see there's a lot of stuff that didn't make it into the film. But it's not, you don't miss it when you see the movie. Because if you do the editing right, all those yeah. things, you go, well, it may be good, but it doesn't help the movie where it is, where it sits, and that sort of thing. There stuff. are a lot of films that we watch nowadays that you're like, you could have shaved off 20 minutes of this to not be so bloated. And it feels like a right. bit, it's like not a streamlined. And that's the point, isn't it? Right. I mean, you look at um, a filmmaker like P.T. Anderson, who is, you know, amazing. He's an amazing director. And all of his movies, I look at him and go, oh, you know, I wish he would just find the 10 minutes to take out. <laughs> because yeah. I, I, you know, I don't presume to know what is right or wrong with any of this. I think his movies are great. But I always feel like he just never takes those 10 minutes out. He is like, a, no, not know, on my I, watch. <laughs> right. And and, um, and I get that. I totally get it. But also when you're making comedy, you have to cut it tight. Because the moment something sits there that's meant to be funny, audiences just go, ah, well, they failed. They fucked it up. And they turn off. They turn off. So you have to keep them. The cafeteria scene, the lunchtime poll, you know, where they're going yeah. around and ask those questions, that was quite a bit longer. And uh, and it had some really good stuff in it. You know, it had silly stuff. Like, you know, when, when Ram is asked what what he would do when aliens come and the earth is going to go or something like that. Yeah. And, and he says, I'd have Madonna come sit on my 
<laughs> sit on my face and whatever. <laughs> and there were things like Heather Chandler said, can't you come up with a more mature answer? And he goes, Linda Evans, you know, <laughs> Madonna. And a joke like that is very funny. It's very, of course, of the day. No, I don't know if people know who Linda Evans is anymore, but um, she, the, the idea, that kind of joke that reads great on page, that's delivered really well, you might not want to keep in the movie because you have to move things along. Yeah. I think that's the thing. It's like, if you've already done it, like how long do you want to keep it going? It's like, let's move. Let's keep it feeling fresh and kind of kinetic as well because you want to keep that energy up. Right. So, you know, these these are the tricky things in, in post-production. And and you shoot all this stuff and you have great shots and you kind of want it to be big. And, and then you realize, oh, you know, that was overindulgent. It's better when it's shorter. So the, the editing process went, the second cut that we screened for people was 15 minutes shorter and it was a million times better. So I got to go back to my friends and say, you told me I fucked it up. It's, this is fine. This is good. It's working. You know. God, Veronica, drool much? His name is Jason Dean. He's in my American history. Hello, Jason Dean. Greetings and salutations. You a Heather? No. I'm a Veronica. Sawyer. This may seem like a really stupid question. And there are no stupid questions. You inherit five million dollars the same day aliens land on the Earth and say they're going to blow it up in two days. What do you do? That's the stupidest question I've ever heard. How many how many cuts did you do? Was the first was second cut and that was locked, or how many cuts do you actually went through? I'm sure we did. We must have done, I mean, you keep cutting the whole time. We probably did only three or four. In those days when you cut film, it was a big deal to say, okay, we have to lock it down and show it to people. Mm -hmm. The post-production process in film is much more time consuming and and complicated because you're working with the work print and all this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. This is all ancient history. People don't make movies that way anymore. Now, when you're cutting, uh, electronically which obviously everybody does you could stop at any point and say let's screen it right now and you yeah. have if something be good enough to screen but in those days you'd have to say all right second cut is going to be on this day we have to work towards that day with sound mix for it and all this kind of stuff so we didn't have that many and we did i think i remember maybe two test screenings you know which were disasters oh no what were people saying oh, yeah. Oh, this movie is horrible and, you know, offensive. <laughs> do you, do you, so those test screenings, you get like a kind of, you go to like get suburban. Is that the idea? You get like some people from suburbia to come and check it out. Yeah. And and they're, they're recruited. The audience is recruited. I mean, I don't, I don't know if they do this in England, but in the States at a shopping mall or something, they'll, they'll be people with clipboards saying, do you want to see a movie? You know, and then they get, they recruit an audience to come in. And they try to recruit, recruit people that might be the kind of people that would like this film. Mm. This is all done very differently now because of all the algorithms and social media and all the sort of stuff that that allows us to track what people like. Then it was a cruder science. Mm. And you would screen the movie in a theater. And then 
people would be asked, they'd fill out a questionnaire and you get a lot of, you know, good input from that, sometimes unpleasant and difficult, but <laughs> helpful. <laughs> and, and then there would be a focus group that would talk about it. And we'd sit through these focus groups and have just cringe when people would insult your work. For How much being... did that then affect it? How much did, did that influence you at all, the test screenings? Like on how you changed this thing. Are you just like, look, this it is what it is, put it out. <laughs> we were we were arrogant young filmmakers. We were we were like, fuck them if they don't get it. You know, but <laughs> but but at the same time, you did have to you would pay attention. You can tell really in those test screenings. And this is something that probably isn't done as much today as it used to be because you don't have the access to theater screenings this way. You'd sit in a room with all those people and you could tell when the energy went out of the room. Mm. You could, you would hear when a joke landed flat or when something that was supposed to be engaging just wasn't connecting with the crowd. And I always paid very close attention to that. It's like, mm, okay, this, there's a dip here. We need to address it. Um, or you see, oh, people are really engaged at the point when they should be. You know, don't mess with it. You're, you've got it working. So um, it's hard when you ask people their opinions and they say things like, these filmmakers don't know what they're going for. Are they making uh, 16 Candles or are they making Blue Velvet? You know, I remember. <laughs> Both. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. I, I think we know exactly what we're making, you know. Yeah. So. But also, I wouldn't be mad by that. It's like, yeah, that's, it's kind of, it's supposed to be weird. It's supposed to be a, a new idea. It's not, it, it's moving on the form. <laughs> It's just difficult when people in the marketing department come back to you and say, well, it looks like uh, people are confused about what this movie is supposed to be. And yeah. you say, no, that's your problem. As the marketing people, you need to tell them that this movie is, a, yeah. is an unexpected combination of elements that, that you'll love. Yeah, I'm not doing your job for you, marketing team. Right. <laughs> Yeah, but, th but their attitude generally is, no, you, you want to you screen the movie and have the percentage of people in the audience who love it be as high as possible. So, so when did you, so what was the date where you first screened it for the cast? And I suppose as well, like that first, that first premiere when you actually got a non-test audience and friends and family kind of screening thing. We, we had, I remember in Westwood in, in LA, we had a cast and must've been a cast and crew screening. It was the first time that everybody saw it. And we all had such a good time making the movie and we all thought the script was so good. And we knew that, that Winona and Christian were superstars in this film. And so everybody was happy. It was a good screening. Uh, I do remember that Shannon was not happy. Oh no, uh, why? I don't know. Um, I asked, I saw that she looked upset afterwards and, and I asked somebody why Shannon didn't seem very happy with that. And they said, oh, well, she didn't realize it was a comedy. I, you know, that was <laughs> a funny comment. I think it was a facetious comment. Um, and Shannon would probably say something different now. So I don't want to speak for her. Um, no, of course. Because for a long time, she didn't seem, she didn't seem to want to promote the movie or be part of it. And then at another point she realized she was in a movie that people are still watching. So, um, yeah. but the general feeling I remember when we screened it there was a good one. But we also took the movie to the Sundance Festival, which was, these were early days of the Sundance mm. Festival. It was not what it became. Yeah. And um, we we're very excited that we got into this festival. And the reaction was, was mixed because it wasn't seen as a true indie movie. You know, right. the 
movie. It was a comedy. And I got a lot of very snarky comments from friends of mine and people I knew at, at Sundance who were saying, eh, you know, this kind of movie shouldn't be here. Wow. Yeah. And it's so funny because, you know, when you look like at now, what gets shown at Sundance, it's yeah. like, again, Heather's walked so half these, most of these films could run. Like, this is exactly the sort of thing that you'd kind of want at this sort of screening. It's interesting the kind of snobby attitude there is then because it's not prestige drama or kind of like hardcore right. thriller. Yeah. I mean, this was, um, it was, that was very disappointing for me, actually. I mean, it was good because it, it got a lot of attention at the festival. And I was told when I, when I showed up to sign in at, at Sundance, the person signing me and said, Oh, you made that movie. And I said, what do you mean? <laughs> that, oh, there are a lot of people really pissed off at you. Wow. This was the reader. And I said, why? You're not and greeting he, me very well. <laughs> no, right. But, you know, honesty is fine. I said, why is anybody mad? And uh, he said, well, the programmer for the festival loves your film and gave you really good screening times in really good theaters. And a lot of people are pissed off. And I thought, well, you know, that's don't be mad at me. You know, don't tell me that people are pissed off at me because of that. Blame the gatekeeper. <laughs> yeah. But then when the movie screened, I did get a lot of very sincere criticism saying this is not appropriate for, uh, you know, for a serious film festival and your your humor is offensive. I, I wonder, I wonder what you think about this, but I think there has been, when you consider the way female-led stories, especially teen female-led stories, there is a kind of an animosity there towards that, that sort of kind of representation. And if you consider, look who's in power, look who's right, the critics at the time, you know, it's a very specific audience and they don't connect to it because it's not about like them. It's actually a dressing down of a lot of that masculinity and the kind of fragile yeah. masculinity in a way. Do you think that, because look, I mean, 30 years gone by, I mean, I'm, I'm, I was born in 88. So like it's 33 years <laughs> old, old. So like to see how much, especially women have grasped onto this film now, and, and and actually it's become universally beloved. It just, it, do you think it was definitely a time you think that the audience there is actually might've been a bit of, um, I don't know, like a slight, slight bias, unconscious bias, or maybe conscious? Could be, I don't know. You know, when the critic for the LA Times was a woman named Sheila Benson. She was a, a very intelligent, sophisticated film critic. She hated the movie, <gasps> but mo a lot of critics liked it quite a bit. It, it did get great reviews, uh, but she hated it. And she she thought it was just mean spirited. Oh. So over time, the understanding of edgier humor has people have a better understanding of it now. But on the, the front of female, you know, being a female story and a girl story. And this was an empowering story about young women. But it was also very much about the conflicts between between young women that are typical in junior high school and high school in the United States and probably around the world. And that um, it was interesting. This was not a movie about the girl gets the guy or mm. she has a makeover and she's suddenly gone from being a wallflower to being uh, socially uh, accepted. It wasn't about those sorts of things. It was about suicide and depression and low self-image and um, and you know an unfair, an unjust behavior in the in the groups in in high school. So a lot of the themes 
we're very serious and and we're i think pro you know pro empowerment of women young women is that is there something you look back on now though because I think as we were kind of, I mean, there was the 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 TV show Heather's that tried to kind of change it to make yeah. it more more diverse. I suppose, you know, when you look back on it, do you kind of think to yourself like, oh, maybe we should have cast maybe like have you know, because obviously it's all white pretty much. I think so. Do you look back and think like, oh, uh, maybe I could have maybe I could have done something to get a better representation, or like, how was it at the time? Were you even offered any? women of color or men of color to even have these these roles was, was that would that even factor into a conversation especially as you as a first time filmmaker first time filmmaker having to do that like kind of i suppose were you was there kind of some i suppose like blinkers on because it's not something you had to think about until it became a more prominent issue later as the years go on and we just kind of demanded more representation it's it's weird because you know hollywood has always been intentionally very inclusive try tried to be you know that oh you know, because Hollywood just wants to appeal to everybody. <laughs> so if they're only making movies for and about white people, then they're failing because they're, you know, they might be alienating the audience. It's not because uh, people in Hollywood are particularly interested in promoting actual diversity. They just want to get more business in a way. <laughs> that's, that's cynical. But at, back in those days, there was not, you would say, of course, we'll get people of color in any of these roles, no problem. But we probably would have said if questioned about it and we weren't questioned about it. No, this takes place in a white suburb. This mm. re, this is a reflection of the the diversity of that particular kind of community. So there was an African-American guy who was the editor of the of yeah. the paper, you know, but because in a in a school in suburban Ohio at that time, probably most of the kids would be white and the kids that weren't white would stick to themselves more likely. Maybe, you know, I don't know the things, things are, they are different now, as far as I can tell in terms of an actual, you know, we, we're all more aware of racism, far more aware, which is a really great thing, but we're also less racist than we were then, <laughs> you know, or we're Our racism is, is, is expressed in a different way. So yes, you make that movie today, you would go out of your way to make sure that, mm. you know, skin color and ethnic background and all these sorts of things or gender choices, all those, those yeah. are the kind of things that are more at play as concerns these days than they were then. We didn't think we were being either discriminatory or excluding. We thought we were reflecting the kind of communities mm. that, you know that were that were in reality being depicted in in the film but i think also that uh, the thing about what i suppose it works because it is so white it's easy to see the kind of discrimination like the kind of like the power plays and the uh, between the women and also that going through but then when sometimes it's like when you introduce um you know if you just introduce a person of color and you'd have to rewrite the script. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but there is an element that actually you couldn't just like put in, um, you know, you can't do colorblind casting, but actually color conscious casting is probably the best way to go. You'd have to reformulate that character so it kind of reflects that experience. And you couldn't, <laughs> it, there'd be a whole different meaning if Veronica was a, was a black girl, because again, she'd also be, you know, marginalized person and it's being right. outside of the chart. And so it's interesting 
how much of a different movie that would even be if you had that. Not to say I wouldn't be welcome for that. I mean, I think it'd be very interesting to see how that dynamic would play out, especially nowadays. Yeah, but you know, when you cast things, and particularly now, you have to ask yourself, okay, we want to be colorblind. It's fine. You know, cast anybody. It doesn't, that should not be an issue. Mm. But then you do have to be aware, but if, oh, but then if you cast the uh, person who's ethnically diverse or non-white, if you make them primarily an antagonistic or negative character, is that going to imply that, you know, the person of that ethnic group is yeah, that their group is bad and you're like ah i don't want to do that <laughs> you know <laughs> so so do you can you only cast people who are non-white in positive roles well no. but that's not colorblind anymore and that's fine you know but these sort of complications they were at play back then they they were it was not like we didn't think about it or we didn't know it's just it, it wasn't as carefully parsed and it wasn't as Things, the decisions made on those fronts were not quite, they weren't as controversial and we weren't as careful about it. No, absolutely. I think there's definitely, this is what progress is, isn't it? We probably didn't even have the language as well to kind of articulate the the issues. I mean, we talk about color blind casting, color conscious. I don't think anyone's talking about that 33 years ago, really. No, I mean, not the way we are now. I, in, in the mid nineties, I made a romantic comedy called The Truth About Cats and Dogs. I loved and it. Was- Love that film. <laughs> yeah, and I really liked that film, and and it was great. And we cast Jamie Foxx as as the best friend of our lead guy. And I remember he, he came in. He was Jamie Foxx was this guy's a movie star, you know. He but he wasn't then. He was he was a comedian who was on a television show. And I remember saying, you know, in every stupid romantic comedy you see, the best friend of the guy is probably some very boring white guy, you know, or somebody who is, maybe he's Jewish or something like that. It's not, you would never at that time cast a, a black guy to be the best friend of your white lead in a romantic comedy. And I remember thinking, that's insane. That's ridiculous. That I like this actor. He should be here. And we cast him. Yeah. But it's it interesting, wasn't... though, that the black best friend has then become a trope, that then became a trope. It's like, okay, now that's the role that you play. There's a exactly whole joke right. in, what is it, not another teen movie where yeah. there's <laughs> where they do the joke about the guy and he's got different hairdos each time and he's just like, I'm just yeah. a token uh-huh. black friend. <laughs> right. But at that point, I wasn't even thinking. It was like, I just want to cast the actor that I think is going to be best in this role. Mm. So it, it is, it's weird. Nowadays, you, you have to be much more, you have to consider these things more carefully because yeah. it, the landscape has changed. And God knows, I mean, I, you, you don't want to offend anybody for the wrong reasons. I always say you want to offend people for the right reasons. Yeah, <laughs> you know? absolutely. And, and, the, and the things that you might do, like the idea of, oh, we'll cast the, the best friend as the black guy. That became almost like, yeah, that's racist because you're only giving him the best friend role and this is tokenism. But I don't know, in the case where I did it in that film, that wasn't tokenism at all. I was being pushed to cast a white guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't, I thought this this actor would be better. I think it's when it becomes like the trend. It's like, it's good to start off, but then it's like, how do we keep, keep on moving forward? Like, uh, I mean, it's not just that. It's like, you know, having gay love stories or having disability or having you know plus size people in roles that are romantic it's like it's constantly this movie thing moving on yeah 
So after the mixed kind of reviews out of Sundance, what was the wider release like? And I think when we've spoken before, as we've said as well, it found a life in home entertainment as well. It was released in theaters and it did get, for the most part, great reviews, which was good. And it did really, really, really good business in New York, in San Francisco, in LA, in Seattle, you know, in, in those markets. But it was barely released outside of those markets. <laughs> and, How did you do um, in Ohio? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. But, you know, New World Pictures went out of business as we were being released. Oh, so <laughs> they, they just completely went out of business. And part of what had happened was that the company was, it was originally Roger Corman's company, New World. It was the low budget exploitation Mm. company that made movies for nothing and played them in drive-ins in the South and whatnot. And it, during the uh, economic boom of home video in the late eighties, New World got built up, made a lot of movies to supply the home video market, which is really how we managed to get Heather's made because it was, it was benefiting from that economic boom. But by the time the movie came out, I guess the company was running out of money. So they released it in theaters, which was great. Had it been scheduled to come out two or three weeks later, it would have never hit the theaters. Wow. So it got good reviews. But the second weekend, there was no ad in the New York Times for it. And back then, the ads were in the newspapers. And I went to the head of marketing in New World. I said, okay, there's no ad in the New York Times. He said, oh, yes, there is. I said, no, there's not. He goes, that's ridiculous. Of course there is. And I said, will you open the New York Times and show me the ad? And he pulled out the New York Times and he flipped through it and went, "Mm. yeah, okay, you're right. You're right. Well, uh, I'll I'll call somebody. And because the company was in such disarray, they didn't even realize, or more likely, he knew that they couldn't afford to pay for the ad. Right. It's just like kind of hoping you didn't check. Right. Just wanted to tell me, yeah, you're wrong. Um, Never underestimate a first-time filmmaker with their movie uh-huh. coming out. They will get every little bit of press cuttings you can. <laughs> yeah, well, you should have seen the discussions about changing the title, you know, because they, they hated the idea of calling it Heather. What what did they want to call it? Oh, you know, like the, the girls of Heather High, you know, that sort of thing. They <laughs> oh, wanted <God>. to... <laughs> Gross. Uh, yeah, I mean, in titles that... Daniel and I and Denise, we would just go, are you kidding? You can't possibly do that. And for foreign release, I think the movie was released as um, Lethal Attraction in Europe because it was like Lethal Weapon and Fatal Attraction were two big hit movies of the time. Oh, God, that's so hilarious. Lethal Attraction. (laughs) Lethal Attraction. And they came, they came to us and said, here's, here's our poster for the foreign thing. It's called Lethal Attraction. You can't call this movie Lethal Attraction. It has nothing to do with Lethal Weapon or Fatal Attraction. And ha- why don't you call it Heather's? They could, that won't translate in in foreign countries. Because the, the name. name <laughs> the name doesn't mean anything. And I said, well, you can do better than that. And they basically I was told, you don't know anything about foreign distribution, so shut up. I'm very confused about that because it's like they don't get it. Well, you just say the three main characters are called Heather. <laughs> it it's, seems uh, pretty obvious. Right. So, um, and I have a big, uh, 
I have a you had a big, very good time with this marketing team. <laughs> I, oh my god! But I do have a big poster for Heather's, a French poster that covers a whole wall in my house. Oh, I love that! Lethal attraction. <laughs> it's epic. <laughs> yeah, or, or fatal games. Maybe it's fatal games. Lethal attraction or fatal games. Yeah. These do sound like straight to video yeah, releases, right. though. <laughs> what did that do for you then? For your like next, because you said you meet the Applegates. Like, like how how did that getting that one getting it done? Once you've done your first film, it's over, and then it's on your sophomore feature. How much did making that kind of set you up and get you meetings and people like I want to work with this guy. He knows what he's doing. I love what he did with this film. No, it did very it did very well for me. I I was able to. I went from being a nobody, nobody to being somebody who would be considered for legitimate you know, bigger budget Hollywood kind of movies. And then I went on to make a whole bunch of terrible choices and and drive my career into the ground, you know, but. <laughs> I just want to put it out there. Airhead was not one of those terrible choices. I love that movie so much. Oh, well, thank you for saying, but you know, it's funny because we made Airheads. I loved making that movie. It was so much fun. Those actors were so good and the script was really funny. And 20th Century Fox, it made it, thought it was going to be a big hit. It came out and did no business at all. So I was, I was led and, and, you know, reviews that a lot of the reviews were like, yeah, this movie's called Airheads and, and it's appropriately titled because blah, 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 you know, snarky reviews like that. So I basically felt though that movie's a failure. And I filed that away in the back of my head and kept, kept moving on. And a few years later, I, at a press junket, I mentioned, you know, the failure that I made Airheads. And like you just said, the person said, are you kidding me? People love that movie. So you never know, you know, that. so there's somebody out there who loves it. And it played on um, cable on Com Comedy Central here in the US all the time. So people have seen it, but it was a box office failure. This is the thing though. It's what I, what I find so interesting is things that find audience maybe like later, like I'm a millennial. And I think so many people kind of go back and they revisit. And I mean, I love so much of the 80s stuff that maybe at the time has been a bit like, oh God, this is a bit crass. But like, it's fine in this audience and people kind of love it because, yeah, it's that it's this kind of era of just like, I quite, I kind of like this like campy, just fun, exuberant, poppy kind of filmmaking where it's just kind of a bit, can be a bit dumb, like kind of low stakes, but just fun. Yeah filmmaking where it doesn't always have to have an edge and I think I don't know they're just really just exactly like a popcorn cinema they just want to sit back and enjoy not everything has to be a deep and meaningful right I guess we're not making as many of those these days there's, there's a higher bar set for somehow you, you should be embarrassed if you're making a movie that's just fun and entertaining yeah I feel like or the closest that, no. one we've had really is like you know something like Logan Lucky which is Steven Soderbergh that yeah. was kind of, that's how, in a way, it's that sort of kind of slapstick, harebrain scheming situation, right. which is kind of like airheads. Yes. I mean, th and those movies, by the way, they're as hard to make as the most serious, uh, socially committed, yeah. complex yeah. drama. They are. They, they don't have as much substance to them, but they're very hard to pull off. And so as a filmmaker, you feel like, well, nobody appreciates what goes into trying to figure out how to make that frothy dish, you know, especially if you want to throw in some dark humor on top of that, mm. that that makes it very difficult. How much would you say there's like a through line from Heather's to through your filmography, like things that, you know, kind of you picked up on doing that and you've actually kind of maintained it like certain practices or, 
you know, how you work with a writer or crew or actors, like things that it worked well on that. And it's something that's become a signature, I suppose, filmmaking technique or, I don't know, attitude and behaviors. Yeah, that's a good question. That's a good question. You know, what's funny, I always think, well, I know the through line that goes through all my work because I was there for all of it. And, you know, I know how it works, but, but I've actually worked in quite a few different genres and I've done work that's pretty diverse. Mm. And, uh, and to me, it's all the same. I mean, really in a, in a funny way, I'm always looking for where that darker humor lies because that to me is the most important element that that can be neglected you know where is the real irony here like what is it that what's the difference between what people do and what they say they're doing and you know play that so i see that as a through line and also i i'm i'm very interested in making sure that the that the things that i do have a sort of that, that they're based in an emotional reality that is that is true to life which is that we're all very complicated we all suffer from narcissism. We suffer from a lack of perspective. We suffer from this horrible egotism. And we also don't really wish harm on anybody else. And we're just trying to be loved. Mm -hmm. And so when you get down to these sort of emotional basics and find where they sit, no matter what the movie's about, no matter what the scenes are about, to, to treat the characters as being these complicated people who have all those things going on in their head and find it. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah. you know, I don't, I'm not interested in creating villains who are just bad people. And I'm not interested in characters that are good people who are saints. That's just not interesting and it doesn't reflect anything in life. So, and this, I think a lot of filmmakers do that by the way, but I think that's also very useful in helping an actor find the best way to play a role, you know, embrace what it is that that character actually, what they want, you know, and what's missing in their life and what do they need? And, and where is the irony, you know, mm. where is there a difference between what they think they need and what they really need or what they think they're doing and what they're actually doing, that sort of thing. So that's a complicated answer to a simple question, but it's really, you know, through line, uh, you know, for most of my movies, there's a good through line, a few of them less so. And in television, I don't always have control over the material the way one does in a movie, but a lot of the time I really like the writers and the actors, and so I feel completely invested in it. And I can say, you know, something like True Blood, which I did a lot of, and I could care less about vampires. I have zero interest in vampires, but I love the satire of that show and felt like it was a direct through line from from heathers and that's oh, definitely thing. i love true blood it's yeah. so good um i have to did francis ford coppola watch heathers did he give you mm. feedback were you in touch <laughs> i was still in touch with with him and people there i i don't know if he personally watched it you know he he's always been he was always very nice to me for for being somebody who came out of his company and and worked i worked there when i was young and so I got a lot of emotional support from all my friends from those <laughs> days. <laughs> and I suppose then, I don't know, like not every person's first film becomes a cult classic and has this like lease of life afterwards and continues to be in everyone's top 10. Like, so how, like, what does that mean to you that I suppose probably it's the one that you're both like, people say, you directed Heather's like, is that, does it mean a lot that that's like you're establishing kind of, you know, your first kind of, 
significant step in Hollywood that it's this one that people adore? Is that quite nice and fulfilling to have? Yes, there's no, I mean, (laughs) if you make anything that people care to keep looking at, you've done a great job. You know, even if they're looking at it as an example of flawed filmmaking. So I feel very fortunate that that was my first one. On the other hand, I've never really been able to make a better movie, Um, (laughs) you you know, because what you find is that when all those elements come together, it's a it's a rare and beautiful thing. Yeah. So, um, you know, I have a lot of admiration for filmmakers who make a lot of great films. You you, I just go, wow, that is so hard to get it right as often as they do. And all the great filmmakers also make big mistakes and they they take missteps and that sort of thing. So uh, simply, yes, very happy that that I ever made a movie that anybody cared to watch more than once. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> and and I have no problem with, if people still want to talk about it 30 years later, fabulous, you know? Uh, and I do think, I, speaking of Francis Coppola, I remember he once was talking and he said, he said, you know, I'll always be remembered as the filmmaker who made The Godfather. And he didn't necessarily mean that in an entirely positive way. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny, because it's like... Yeah. You made it's mad. He'll always be the director who made Bram Stoker's Dracula. <laughs> right. And I, I'm thinking, you made The Godfather, you know. Yeah. And Apocalypse you Now, you made, you've done all right, mate. <laughs> well, he did, he did do all right. But. It's all, it's all, it's all, you know, respective. Everyone's like, it's like on people's different things. And I suppose then what's, what's next? What, what are you up to now? What can we see next? But I have a, a show that I just directed the, the eight, eight episodes of a limited series for Netflix. And I love it. It'll it'll come out early next year. And it stars Kristen Bell, who is yes, really yeah. good. She is, she is really good. And it's a it's an odd one. I, I hope people like it and get it. I think they'll get it. It's a it's a female driven suspense thriller, murder thriller that is a comedy, but there's not a joke to be had in it. It is just played completely straight. And it's oh, called this. called The Woman in the House Across the Street from the Girl in the Window. <laughs> it's essentially, we threw in every element that every one of movies of that genre have, and we played them completely seriously to the point where you realize halfway through, oh my God, they're, they're being funny here. <laughs> and... And because Kristen is, uh, she's genius with comedy. She yeah. knows how to play it very close to the best. And she's really fun to watch. And I think that, I think that show will be, you know, I love it. I'm very happy with it. And I hope people like it. So it's, it's eight episodes. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to direct all of them. And that's, you know, so that's coming out soon. I think it seems like the perfect fit. Uh, you kind of, you did it with Heathers. I feel like this seems like a really good time for that. And I just love that title. Try yeah. getting that in the radio, <laughs> radio times yes. or the TV guide. <laughs> well, you know, that's what it was called in the script. And then for a while, uh, everybody said, well, that title's just too long. We'll just call it the woman in the house. And the, which is fine. It's fine. But when finally we, we, uh, Netflix agreed that we're really better off calling it what it should be called. So yeah. woman in the house across the street from the girl in the window. <laughs> Don't get shifted on titles as we learned with Heather's. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Dan Pat. 
Well, Michael, thank you so much for your time. It's been such an amazing conversation. And yeah, looking forward to the woman in the house. Across the street. street. From the girl in the window. From the girl in the window. (laughs) (laughs) I'll memorize it next time. (laughs) Yeah. That was director Michael Lehman talking about Heathers, which you can rent or buy on most digital platforms and at home entertainment retailers. Next time on The First Film Club, we're joined by casting director Carmel Cochran, who will be reminiscing about her feature debut, 2014's Lilting. Thank you for listening to The First Film Club podcast. Please like, subscribe, share, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at first underscore film club to keep up with the show and hear about our latest film screening events. This is a stripped media podcast series written, produced, and hosted by Hannah Flint and Natalie Louise. Edited by Ben Williams with music composed by The Last Skeptic. You just heard a stripped media production. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.